Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. On today's episode, we cover many topics, including, but not limited to, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, different types of stress, mental illness and trauma, treatment programs and meditation, and the resurgence of hallucinogenic drugs in clinical psychology. Episode 19 is happening right now, so let's go. Emily is a fourth-year PhD candidate in clinical psychology at the Pacific Graduate School of Psychology at Palo Alto University. She's accrued a wealth of clinical experience in the field, working in hospitals, primary care, and outpatient settings, including McGill University's Douglas Mental Health Institute. She's currently at the San Francisco VA, working with veterans who experience health-related conditions. She's also working on assessing and evaluating diagnoses of serious mental illness, for example, schizophrenia and bipolar spectrum disorders, for studies that are examining the effects of oxytocin on improving social connectivity, as well as the risks and benefits of psilocybin across a wide range of psychopathologies and serious mental illnesses. Emily's clinical interests include other phenomena such as insomnia, chronic pain management, weight management, and obesity. She's also studied cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure treatments in veterans with PTSD at the VA's National Center for PTSD. Her dissertation title is Post-Traumatic Cognitions and Health Behaviors in Recently Traumatized Treatment-Seeking Civilian Adults, which we will discuss in great detail. She's got aspirations to pursue a career with both a clinical and a research focus. Emily also loves anything to do with dogs, nature, and scuba diving, among a plethora of other fun and exciting hobbies. I'm thrilled to have her on the podcast today. So without further ado, Emily, how's it going? Thank you for having me, Jeremy. I'm doing great. It's very warm and sunny here, but there have been fires recently. So from what I saw, it was also recommended that you wouldn't even leave your house right? because the air quality was so poor. Yeah, so we are really stuck indoors with a double whammy of COVID, needing to social distance and um, not being able to go outside due to the, the air quality. So that was just really bizarre. And yes, my productivity was just completely declined. It's better now that it's sunny, so Good. I can't complain. I'm glad to see that things are, things are looking up, at least on that front. That's great, because we, <laughs> we can all use a, a good amped up energy and focus. So we're going to keep sapping energy from this lovely weather that you've got, and that will fuel the energy on today's episode. So if you're listening, thank you for being here. We're going to hop right into things. If you were with us last episode, episode 18, then you might have noticed that things got a little bit shorter in terms of the focus and the speed, and we're just kind of trying to chug through here, get as much information packed into each episode as possible while also keeping the listen time down. So we're going to try to do the same thing today. 
taking a bit of a different approach. Instead of running through three different levels of complexity of a topic, given that Emily has such a wide variety of experience and a wealth of knowledge, I want to try and tap into as much of it as possible in a broad way. So that's kind of the general framework of how we're going to do things. Sounds good. Sounds good? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, we, we had a jam-packed introduction here. Given that you're a clinical psychologist, or at least working towards becoming a psychologist, you work with clinical populations, people who experience mental illness. Yes, that's right. In a lot of different types of mental illness as well, in different settings too. Since I'm a graduate student, we're sort of expected to juggle a lot of you know, coursework, research, uh, clinical training, as well as writing our dissertations and trying to get a well-rounded resume. So we really do it all, <laughs> yes. It's pretty cool that you're able to get that experience early on and that you aren't just kind of pigeonholed early, early in your career because that will allow you and your colleagues to, you know, potentially go on to have fruitful careers in very varied fields. So that's great. You did specifically mention that you work with the Veterans Association or with veterans specifically. Is there a reason for that? Do you have a personal connection to it? How did you get into that? I think what led me to work with veterans was just my interest in post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, due to personal experiences of, of experiencing trauma in my family and in different ways, I sort of gained an awareness of what is really happening and how multifaceted reactions to trauma really are and how common they are. So I became really interested in how certain people are able to recover from traumatic experiences versus others who may struggle a little bit more. So that kind of led me to my first research externship at the National Center for PTSD, where I learned more about implementation, dissemination of different evidence-based treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder. And then that sort of eventually led me to working with veterans because they are a very fascinating population. It's, it's interesting as a Canadian because we don't have the same view or the same structure of, of the military in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's more common in America to go into the military and there's a larger population. And I, I think that's sort of just what led me to working directly with veterans in clinical care. And it's been so lovely and interesting and rewarding and challenging. That's but super cool. That's sort of my story of how I ended up there. And this seems to be something that has continued to be a focus of yours. It isn't that you just had a quick stint working with veterans and then you went on with your life. You actually found a very special place in your heart for veterans and for things that they might suffer from, like PTSD. Mm -hmm. In what other clinical populations do we find PTSD has the highest incidence outside of veterans? Yeah, so it's, I guess, a common misconception that all veterans have PTSD. A lot of them, yes, do as a result of combat experience and just being deployed. There's a lot of things that can happen. But a lot of them also don't have PTSD because of the things I was just talking about before. Some are really able to recover, and there's certain factors that go into that. And others, they do struggle more after experiencing a traumatic event. Um, I would say probably veterans do have higher incidences of PTSD just because they have more exposure to combat, more exposure to different potentially traumatic events. But I also work at a clinic called the Early Intervention Clinic that actually serves civilians. That's where I got my data for my dissertation on. So I sort of have seen both sides, like civilians with PTSD, also veterans with PTSD as well. So 
I would say that's a tough question in the sense that there's so many different factors that go into why someone develops PTSD versus not. But common traumatic experiences that I work with would be like car accidents, you know, rape, assault, any type of suicide, homicide, or sudden death bereavement. And then even just like adjustment to a really intense disability or disease of some sort that takes a lot of renavigating your life, which could be traumatic too. So across the board, there's a right. lot of different things. There that are we- a lot of ways to develop PTSD. Unfortunately. Yes. It doesn't just have to be the product of being somebody who went to war. There are other ways. Definitely not. And I think the field is sort of, we, it took a long time for the field of psychology to, to realize that, but that was a a main belief for a long time that you only if you went to war, you, you got PTSD. And then over the years, there's just been a lot of refinement of the DSM-5 criteria, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Illness, mm-hmm. realizing that, that there's, there's other things that happen in life to just you know regular civilians who also had similar emotional reactions and symptoms. So now in the field, it's pretty recognized, but it, it, not, it didn't used to be, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. PTSD is a very well-known acronym. Post-traumatic stress disorder is is something many people know about. Are there other post-traumatic disorders? And are there other stress disorders that are not PTSD? Yes, but it's more about time frame. So you can have an acute stress reaction. So any individual who goes through something really traumatic, which would entail being exposed to actual or threatened death, violence in any way, either personally or vicariously. Within that, like anyone who experiences something that's just out of the the normal realm of a human life experience, like seeing someone get murdered or, you know, being in a really, in a near death car accident, like all of those would normally, you'd exhibit some kind of symptoms. It's just the way humans respond Mm -hmm. to very stressful situations. So there is a diagnosis that captures that. It's called acute, acute stress disorder, but that's really only if the symptoms are there for about a month. PTSD would really be if it's expanding past that month and really impacting you on a social and occupational level where your functioning's impaired and not able to do what you once were, feel able to do what you once were due to that emotional distress. But there's different subtypes of PTSD. So you can have like a dissociative subtype, which means like you can kind of emotionally numb yourself by distancing yourself from the memories that, that come up that are intrusive. You're maybe not remembering important aspects of the event or, or parts of yourself too. You might feel disconnected from yourself or others or even from reality. But apart from that, there, there's also adjustment disorder, I would call it, which is pretty common. It's just going through an experience that you're adjusting to, right? And it's not feeling right at that time. And yes, there's a disorder for almost everything. Which I was is- going to say, I feel like everybody's had to adjust to something in their life. The DSM, I know it appears that for any disorder, you just need to basically check off a number of boxes of criteria and somebody mm-hmm. could say you have this sort of disorder. Yes. The way I like to think about it, which is a little bit more, it gives me peace of mind that we're not just like diagnosing front, left and center things that are not really pathological is really that last criteria in the DSM that states the symptoms must be causing really functional impairment and distress. You can have 
PTSD symptoms, for example, but not be distressed by it, you won't have the disorder. Mm-hmm. That's a great nugget right there. Can you actually say that one more time for us? Yeah. So basically you could have symptoms of a lot of different disorders, let's just say, but if it's not really causing you distress, it's not really causing you impairments in your relationships or, or at school or at work, it's not necessarily a diagnosis. You need to be really distressed by what's going on, which is typically the case because what's going on is like not in line with who you want to be or how you want to behave, right? Maybe in mm-hmm. some ways. So that's the biggest part there. That's great. I, this feels relevant to me in that I've always been interested in OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder because mm-hmm. I have seen in myself certain obsessive and compulsive behaviors Mm-hmm. that I have not necessarily self-diagnosed because I, I don't know what the criteria are mm-hmm. clearly. But after having read a case study about somebody who had OCD, I realized the big difference between myself and this person is that just like you said, I don't experience distress due to the obsessions that I have with certain things or compulsions that I have with certain things. Right. It, it's almost just like a personality quirk. It, it is purely traits, right? We all have traits of different symptoms, but you know, the biggest part is if we're not distressed by it, then it's not really something that we want to change. We're not going to seek treatment for it. We're not going to, those aren't the people going in for treatment, but it, it, it is interesting. I think a lot of people self-diagnose. So maybe hopefully this could help certain people. Sure. <laughs> That's not, we're not always completely accurate at knowing what that means. Right. <laughs> so. That's totally valid. So let's just definitely for the listeners, err on the side of caution when you get excited about diagnosing yourself. Take stock of whether you are actually being distressed on also, as you were saying, there's this temporal element on a long time scale or maybe monitor if something's more acute. And if it passes in time, then you know that you're home free. All right, break number one. We're going to pick up the conversation where we left off in just a few moments. I just wanted to mention if you've seen any tracks on the podcast that seem a little bit different than others called chapter one two three four and so on these are part of a rap album project a supplementary study tool for a psychology class this fall feel free to check it out but if you're into the podcast solely then keep with the episode numbers i'm curious i know it it didn't come out in the introduction but in terms of meditation as a therapy i've used it for myself in times of stress and anxiety and it's helped me greatly is PTSD the kind of disorder where people can actually benefit from meditation? And have you seen any clinical applications of it? Yeah, so I can give you one example of how that might be something that could benefit certain patients, but how it might be something that actually, in some cases, could be a problem. Mm-hmm. And that kind of highlights the importance of you know tailoring the approach to the individual patient that you're working with. On one hand, meditation can make you a lot more present and can really be beneficial for a lot of different disorders, including PTSD, and um, have helped a lot of people really connect more to the here and now and, and actually use those kind of relaxation skills if they are finding that they're having flashbacks or intrusive thoughts, really grounding themselves. It can also be useful for when we're, you're having a dissociative experience to really connect back to the present moment and connect with you know what you're seeing outside, what you're feeling on your body around you, where you are, all of those things. But sometimes, in certain cases, very rare I'd say, but sometimes you know meditation can in some ways 
cause more dissociation, if that makes sense. Like someone, maybe they can't meditate, they can't get themselves in that state. And that causes a lot of stress. Cause imagine like the one thing you're supposed to do is relax and it makes certain people maybe feel really out of control when they're not able to achieve that level of relaxation. But then it can also in some ways serve to reinforce avoidance, right? We really want people trauma to talk. It's better to talk about what's going on rather than internalizing it. But rarely I'll say this, that can happen where maybe or avoiding actually confronting what's going on through meditation. But I will say for listeners, meditation is definitely a very, very good thing to be doing. And I wouldn't worry about those few case examples I just shared because that's really rare, but I have seen it before. And like you said, as long as you're not using meditation as your only coping mechanism, these these kinds of things should be spoken about with other people. I think so. There's some debate in the, like it is trauma, our trauma focused therapies always the right decision for a patient. I think one of the biggest risks is that it's definitely frontline and a gold standard treatment and that we, anyone who comes in, that's the one thing that we'd probably want to give you first, right? Talking about the trauma, not meditation, but meditation could be as a coping mechanism on the side of that. And then there's some people who drop out of those treatments because they're too difficult to bear. It really requires going back into the past and making yeah. sense and rewriting your narrative almost in a way that's more helpful. So there's a big risk of attrition in those treatments, which makes sense because avoidance is a hallmark characteristic of PTSD, but that's what maintains it. And that's what I was doing research on a little bit before was our trauma focused therapies always the only solution. What can we give to veterans or other people who need treatment, who want treatment, but aren't willing to go to that level of, of going back to their memories and things like that. So you talk about trauma-focused therapies in the introduction, to just to harken back to that, you, you mentioned that you studied cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure treatments. Do these fit into the category you're talking about, or are these alternatives? That's the, great listener. Um, those are trauma-focused therapies. So both of those require, in different ways, to go back and re- and talk about what happened and what's why that why the event is causing continued distress and and symptoms today. In cognitive processing therapy, it's more about actually writing down what an impact statement, what happened to you, and then you work with the therapist to identify stuck points that keep you stuck in your recovery. I'm biased to that one. I love that therapy. Um, I think that I've seen it work really well with patients of all different backgrounds and identity factors and trauma types as well. Prolonged exposure is a little bit maybe perceived to be a little scarier in some ways because there's a lot of re-saying, re-saying, re-saying what happened to you. You keep going. Mm -hmm. And then the point is that we're supposed to habituate and then eventually desensitize to the memories that we talk and talk and Mm -hmm. talk through. And and that it does work over time, but people don't like that one. Right. (laughs) That seems, uh, oh boy, that's, and then you listen to it at home for homework and you yeah you rate how you felt before and after and over time you do see decreases in subjective ratings of, of distress but it's it's definitely a tough one to go through yeah that's Candy. very interesting i did want to touch on something that you mentioned with cognitive processing therapy i find it very interesting literally today i was watching 
a video on uh, developing a growth mindset. And with growth mindset, one of the fundamental things that is recommended that you do is sit down with a pencil and a paper and write out what it is that you want your future to look like. Mm. So the fact that you're talking about having patients sit through this cognitive processing therapy treatment and actually write out what it is that their trauma was and, and work through it that way, it's interesting to see how we're using this therapy to bring people from a bad place to a neutral place. And then that's also being applied in totally other fields to bring people from where they're at to the best version of themselves they can possibly be. Right. There's a lot of that in therapy. And I think therapy means a lot of different things to different people and to different providers in some ways as well. I think that revisiting certain things just leads to a lot more insight into you know, why I'm feeling this way and, and, and can really open doors. I think insight can be such a powerful tool that can really help you move forward or at least find some more acceptance about what happened. Very cool. Okay, so those are kind of two of the big treatments that were mentioned that you have dealt with. Another one, which I'm definitely interested in hearing more about, is the use of psilocybin, which people might know colloquially as magic mushrooms or hallucinogenic mushrooms. I know that there is a, quite a bit of contention around the use of hallucinogenic drugs since some, I, I don't know the whole history, but I, I know early on there was some use in the clinical scene and things were a yeah. little bit less regulated. Some now I know it's different. studies at Harvard gone awry. Yeah, exactly. Some, some yeah. weird things. So the fact that you're working with that, I'm curious to know how things might have changed, how, how strict it is now and what it looks like to administer one of these treatments using uh, psilocybin? Yeah, so unfortunately I'm not, at, due to COVID and, and other things, my involvement in certain aspects of the studies that are ongoing have been halted a little bit. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately I don't have those answers for you, but I know a lot about what is going on. And yes, there is a lot of this revival around magic mushrooms and psilocybin specifically to alleviate a lot of distress that goes on with a lot of different end of life issues. And even now it's being um, associated with improving treatment resistant depression, which is pretty huge. So initially, yes, there were studies on LSD, which was made up in someone's lab by accident. And um, that's, I don't know the whole acronym to LSD, to be honest. I'm Lysergic acid diethylamide. So, yeah, I would have botched that one, so I will not go there, but <laughs> no the acronym works well for me. There was a lot of studies on how LSD could be used and initially even MDMA, which I'm not really doing much about, but there's a lot of research about how MDMA now is being used in PTSD. And, and those are, there's a lot of studies conducted by MAPS right now around the Bay Area and other parts of the U.S. too that are looking at administering MDMA to patients with PTSD who have gone through treatments like cognitive processing theory, prolonged exposure, but didn't see any remission in their symptoms. And it's showing that it's one of the top lines of treatment for those po that population. And it's actually crazy news about to go into like FDA approval for um, potential uh, prescriptions for certain people. What? So, Yes, I may have gotten some of those words a little bit wrong, but it is okay. all underway. They're opening these clinics now that are solely doing that. And it's, it's, it's expanding faster at this point than psilocybin, but in different ways. Psilocybin is kicking off right now 
after they had just shown, you know, there was a big study at NYU that showed that psilocybin can really alleviate that end of life crisis and that existential crisis that comes along with a cancer diagnosis or mm -hmm. any terminal illness. And now there's this evidence. And then it was also replicated results were shown in AIDS survivors that demoralization, that feeling of sorrow, that things aren't going to get better, that hopelessness is in many ways resolved and it's long-term. It's not just you take the dose and two days later you're feeling good, but then it, it stops. It's, it's sustaining itself. So now it's, it's starting to peel into depression and other things as well. And I'm not personally involved in the depression studies, but we are starting to now look at, okay, well, psilocybin is something that could be applied to other serious mental illnesses and other um, psychopathologies. And it's a really exciting time because I think that a lot of people use psilocybin now, especially in the Bay Area, to microdose or recreationally. It's, it's almost like rebirth. And, and the taboo has just been eliminated completely. So that's sort of posing a problem for a lot of the psilocybin work because now there's this attitude about it that's changed. And that has a big, big role that, that is played in, in research. I feel like if you had a positive attitude towards a drug, you took that drug, you wouldn't necessarily have this prolonged benefit from it, right? Like you're talking about clinically using this drug to eliminate something or, or to mitigate the effects of something like PTSD. Mm -hmm. I, I would find it hard to believe that just being excited about experiencing the effects of a right. drug, if that's what you're saying, would that's be fair. enough to kind of overcome that. That would, that would basically make PTSD seem just like a fake. Well, yeah, for clarity, psilocybin is, has not been looked at for, for PTSD. Okay. It's more looking at like depression and, and sure. even just adjustment to illness. But there is, there, it's one of, of many factors that we're all trying to understand now. Like what, what is it that is making this? effective long term right is it because of these attitudes or is it you know because of the environment that you're in when you're given these controlled drugs right and the mdma studies like you're in this really zen room and you're given these amazing headphones and you're with two really trained amazing facilitators who are near you so is that part of what's going on here i mean well wait a second hold on hold on so <laughs> I, I assume there were there were controls for this. People who were put in this room, given a sugar pill with the professionals and everything. Did they not do this? They have, and they also showed that they are also seeing good results too. And I mean, I'm not fully involved in maps. I'm not even I'm not even remotely involved in What's maps. What's maps? Yeah, they look at a lot of all the MDMA for PTSD studies and. Of course, I'm maybe even like not doing it justice because I'm not really working in that, but it's it's similar principle. It's There's clearly something that's effective about what's happening, but people in science are very careful. We're very skeptical. We're very, very careful. I think, you know, we're just trying to understand all the different things that are happening. But I think an interesting thing that is coming up too with these questions that the discussions that I've been a part of are, you know, well, does that mean the, the therapist, the facilitator, do they need to know what psilocybin feels like and is experienced in order to be a facilitator for these sessions? Mm -hmm. And what makes a competent or effective facilitator versus someone who's not? There's those questions that are happening that are really interesting. There's, there's a lot of different potential mechanisms that we're trying to unfold, but also 
we're interested, we, we just want to know, like, is this really effective or is it other things going on? And it's probably a combination of both, like most things are. Right. Um, it depends. This is the most famous expression in psychology. For sure. <laughs> there, are, there are always, I think psychology is known for being a field where there are many, many, many factors to take into account. We're dealing with human beings who are very complex by nature. Exactly. And then when you bring in environment and, and context, that's another thing. Second break of two. We're going to close things up, talk about a couple more things in the last section of today's episode. For now, let it all sink in. In terms of maybe even if we can just have fun pontificating or hypothesizing what might be the reasoning for psilocybin playing such a such a prominent role or, or certain drugs playing a prominent role in helping people with these treatment resistant conditions, one thing that comes to mind is this notion of confrontation. Sure. So like from what I've heard from reading about people's experiences with hallucinogenic drugs. I guess, namely ayahuasca, which can be maybe more similar to like a mix between mushrooms and LSD, just something very intense. People tend to confront certain elements of their person and of their life in a very deep kind of way. So I guess a couple of things. One, is there any way that we can think about manufacturing this deep connection with some problem that you're dealing with? And maybe that's what you're doing by listening to recordings of yourself say that, you know, talk about details of your experience in prolonged exposure treatments, but maybe there's some, there has something to do with this, with this confrontation that allows you to really zone in on what the issue is for yourself. There's this expression, I think, in the world of psilocybin, it's, it has something to do with finding meaning and insight. Another thing, I think psychedelics have the potential to unlock a lot of insight into yourself and into your world, into your environments that you didn't maybe have those perspectives before. So that's why sometimes people come out of those experiences like feeling rebirthed or feeling like they understand themselves better, which is related to what you were saying about those things. I know that also it can make you a little more disinhibited. So people who maybe have a wall up or have been guarded at times, it maybe parts of them have been unlocked or, you know, the door has been opened for different things that for many different reasons, they haven't given themselves that time or space to, to explore. So I think that's one big reason why there's this hype around it. I also think that, it gives people sometimes a new perspective. And sometimes you just need that shift. Sometimes we're really stuck and really not really sure where to go from there. And sometimes we just, it's like almost a creativity boost, if you want to call it that, or a different way to see the world, a different way to see what you're going through. A lot of people come out of those experiences saying that I feel like there's so many parts of my life that are so trife and so insignificant. And I've been dwelling and dwelling for years and years on, on these things. And it's, it's been really holding me back. And now I just feel like I have this world around me. I have uh, the beauty of nature and, and I've seen it now. Like I've been reconnected with it. 
So you feel reconnected, which can, you know, oftentimes give people a little bit more of a purpose and, and find meaning in their lives that they may have felt was lacking. With MDMA, it's really interesting. And I don't know all the biology, the neurobiology or chemistry of this, but and what maintains PTSD over time is that fear response, right? You come into, you encounter something that brings fear or evokes fear in yourself, which kind of brings on all the other symptoms and then makes you, you know, perpetually afraid of life and your environment and others, et cetera. But with MDMA, if you think about it, it increases social connectivity. It makes you want those feelings of closeness with others. And with MDMA, it's, it's interesting. It, there's effects on the amygdala, which is the fear, our brain's fear response that regulates you know, what we eat, what, what we're scared of. Like it, it activates our fight or flight system and regulates a lot of different other things in our bodies. And they're showing that there's mechanisms going on there that's attenuating that fear response. So people who are using the MDMA in a, a controlled drug study are, are less inhibited. They're talking more. They're less fearful. They're less feared of being judged. They're just more open and more able to actually talk about what's going on. So It's hard to even imagine that the field of clinical psychology can have treatments that are so completely different in the way that they operate on the individual. You have, for example, for people who have treatment-resistant depression, these are people who have potentially been taking SSRIs, which are, which, from what I've heard, essentially just kind of work to reduce symptoms. They're not really trying to solve a problem. They're just trying to make life livable. Mm-hmm. And so that's not really a strength-based approach, if you ask me. Whereas this idea of taking psilocybin to grow as a person is, is antithetical to that method. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, is there kind of a split in the clinical community where some people swear by the symptom-focused treatment, like saying, let's get rid of the, the down moods or this and that of people who have depression versus, no, let's actually take this person out of themselves for a bit, show them a different side of themselves. Is it split that way? Or is everybody now kind of opening their eyes to this possibility of what I would consider a more strength-based approach? It's a great question. And I think we don't know, right? Like who should get the psilocybin versus who should get the SSRI? Like those questions right now are 10 years away from an answer, maybe even more. Mm -hmm. Just because it's so novel and and nuanced and, um, and it's also pretty radical. So yes, there are a lot of people who will be on the camp of, well, we don't know if it's actually psilocybin or MDMA that's, that's causing the mechanisms of change. We don't know that, you know, people kind of challenging that. And then there's also camps of research that look at, well, look at all the risks that have happened. There's these reported case studies. There's people who died. Like we still don't know the risk and we don't know exactly what identity, genetic, environmental factors contribute to that risk it's still just so novel and definitely you know these non-traditional healing techniques are really interesting to me because i i agree with you that there's not always a one uh, like a cookie cutter approach for everyone and i think that some people you know i i want to know more about what makes certain people heal from maybe a cookie cutter approach, but then what's going on with the other people that aren't getting those same benefits. So I, I'm personally on the camp of 
this is really interesting and this is really moving our field towards some cutting edge things that have a potential for a lot of growth and healing, but it's slow. Psilocybin is still not, you know, FDA approved in any capacity. There's one study that's going on right now and it's, it's happening for just depression, which is a big deal because you don't need to have gone through any type of treatment to enter this study. But because it's FDA controlled, it's going to be very stringent. And so do you see how it's going to take years, I, I think, but it's cool to be, you know, early on in my career and early on in this new era to be a part of it and learn about it. This podcast is called Abstract, colon, the future of science. So here, the, the fact that we have you today talking on the podcast about the the future of your field is perfectly fitting. And I appreciate that. First of all, you have an immense wealth of knowledge that you've just shared with us, which I am grateful for. So thank you. And the fact that you're talking about there is all this change happening, that keeps things exciting. And I honestly look forward to keeping in touch and hearing more about what happens in your field as more studies potentially come out, seeing how different therapies evolve and what's happening with psilocybin and other treatments. So I just have one final question for you, which will potentially become the new final question. This question is, if I told you right now that there were a thousand people listening to the next thing you're about to say, and you have 15 seconds to say it, what would you tell a thousand people at this stage in your life, of all the life experience you've had, if you could impart 15 seconds worth of information, what would you tell people? Do I have 15 seconds to think about it? Sure. Oh, okay. I'm kidding. I don't need that long. I would tell you to not be afraid to get help. It's really not, it's not as scary as you think. And it can really help you, you know, just gain more insight and, and be the best version of yourself. Honestly, I think that's what we're all striving for. And if you're ever feeling like I'm not there yet, that's totally normal and okay. And don't be down on yourself if that's happening. But know that you can always reach out for support at any time with any crisis, not even a crisis. You don't even need to go to therapy if you're experiencing a crisis. That's a big take home. You could just go for self-improvement and growth and gaining insight. And that is my, what's it called? My subtle advertisement on going to, to therapy. It's, it's truly beneficial for so many. So do it. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad that you shared that with us. And this, is, this has been wonderful. Such a great resource you are, Emily. Thank you for coming on. This, is, this has been extra special. Have a great rest of your evening, afternoon. And uh, once again, you. it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.